Maybe you've seen the lawyer ads on TV. For a period of some 35 years, a million people were potentially exposed to contaminated drinking water at Camp Lejeune, the Marines' base camp in North Carolina. Since 2017, veterans from that era are presumed to have service-related illnesses from drinking that water. Now the Veterans Affairs Department Inspector General has found the Veterans Benefits Administration hasn't done a great job of processing those claims. We get the details from the Deputy IG for Audits and Inspections, Brent Arante. Mr. Arante, good to have you on. Thank you. And just give us a little bit of the background here of when this whole water issue took place, because it seems to be coming into the news suddenly. There's more lawyers on television than there are green flies on a dog carcass. Absolutely, there is. In, in the 1980s, there were contaminants found in several of the wells that provided drinking water to Camp Lejeune. The contaminants included volatile organic compounds like trichlorethylene, perchlorethylene, vinyl chloride, benzene, and other compounds. The primary sources of this contamination were found to be leaking storage tanks that were located on the Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune and an off-base dry cleaning facility. It is estimated that the contaminants were in the water supply from the mid-1950s, and in February 1985, the wells were shut down. All right. So lots of people then came through Camp Lejeune in that period, besides members of the armed services. But your concern is the claims from veterans to the VBA, correct? And give us the scope of those so far. Sure. So we did our review this past year, and we just recently issued our report on our findings. And what it looks like to us is there were about 58,000 veterans that have filed claims for exposure to the contaminated water in Camp Lejeune. And what we found was approximately 21,000 of those claims were not processed correctly. And what I mean by that is we identified two different types of processing errors with these claims. One, which was the largest group, we found where the VBA claims processors prematurely denied benefits to veterans because the claims were denied without all of the evidence. And the second major error that we found was with the presumptive conditions, they did not assign the correct effective date to pay the benefits. So the effective date is when a benefit is to be paid. And all of these were resulted in underpayments to the veteran in the amount, just a little over $13 million. Yes. And we're talking about an older veteran population then, right? If the contamination is presumed to have ended almost 40 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is It is very much so an older population. I, I don't have the a ranging date, but clearly based on the dates alone, you can discern that this was an older population for sure. Sure, because the contamination, as you mentioned, started back in the 50s. So in 2017, the VBA policy of presumptive entitlement to these benefits for certain diseases, how did that come about? Was that by legislation or just VA oh. and its largesse? So I think it was it was twofold. The legislation came about in March of 2017, and VA established a presumption of service connection. This presumption, though, was based on the fact that there's a a group of folks that identified the toxins and made the determination that these were toxic to humans, and that was the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. They determined that, as you indicated earlier, that about one million individuals who resided or worked at Camp Lejeune between the mid-50s to the mid-80s could have been 
exposed to these contaminants. And then two months later, in March of 2017, the VA went ahead and based on that science, identified these eight conditions as being presumptive. And these tend to be cancers of various organs? Yes. So these eight presumptives, and these are serious. These are very serious diseases. Adult leukemia, aplastic anemia, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, liver cancer, multiple myeloma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and Parkinson's disease. We're speaking with Brett Arante. He's Deputy Inspector General for Audits and Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. So there were more than 20,000 claims from veterans, again, mishandled or incorrectly denied. What are your recommendations to rectify the situation? The two recommendations we did, and I think the first one is logical, in my opinion. We asked the Undersecretary for Benefits to have all the Camp Lejeune claims processed at the Louisville Regional Office. And the reason we did that is the Louisville Regional Office had been designated as the sole office to process Camp Lejeune claims. And these processors at the Louisville Regional Office had created a specialized team that was familiar with the law, familiar with all the processes. And when we did our review, the the claims that were processed in the Louisville Regional Office had around an 8% error rate which anything under 10%, we, we typically don't make a recommendation for. But those claims that were processed at the other 55, 56 regional office had a much higher error rate, almost around the 40% error rate. So to us, it just made sense. Let's pull all these claims back in and have a Louisville regional office process these claims because that's where your expertise is at. And the benefits are monetary? The benefits are monetary, Absolutely. It's kind of twofold. To obtain health care, it typically has to start, not always, but it's a good start to have the benefits granted. And once the benefits are granted, even if it's granted at 0%, the veteran is now entitled to health care at a VA facility. So the fact that, that we found $13 million in underpayment, that, that's fairly significant as well. But to get the claims granted allows the veteran to move on to the VHA and get all the other benefits at the hospitals, but also education benefits. And there's just a litany of benefits that occur once that key granting of service connection occurs. And for those among that 58,000, are some of them, to our knowledge, those that might have received less than honorable discharges, and they're therefore not entitled to VA benefits otherwise, but if they have these cancers and were at Camp Lejeune in that era, are they then entitled to VA benefits? that gets a little more complicated. If a veteran has a bad conduct discharge, then no, they are not entitled to veterans benefits. If the veteran has an honorable discharge, then clearly they are. The gray area happens when a veteran sometimes receives the less than honorable discharge. Sometimes VA has to administratively write them in. That's the language. They approve them because whatever caused the um, discharge to be less than honorable is by VA standards, does not preclude them from receiving these payments. So they're allowed to file the claim and, and whatever is adjudicated is what happens. So there's really a fairly complicated set of interrelated rules that the processors need to have. And therefore, the recommendation for where the expertise lies in the Louisville area. That's correct. It's the, the expertise is in Louisville. And although we did find that VBA had fairly decent training and fairly clear guidance, for whatever reason, the folks outside of Louisville just struggled. And we believe that occurred because 
the Louisville folks had a specified group and they saw these claims all the time. Whereas folks that process claims outside of Louisville, they just didn't see enough of these claims. They become proficient with them. Sure. And does VBA accept that recommendation? So we have a very robust follow-up process. So they did concur with the recommendation. They concurred with both recommendations. And what will happen is in 90 days from the time the report was released, we will go out to VBA and we will ask them to provide us their plan. If their plan does not meet the intent of the recommendation, we will not close that recommendation. And that process continues every 90 days. And then once we hit the year mark, if those recommendations are not closed, then any recommendation that has been in place and not closed for a year or longer is forwarded to the secretary. Brent Durante is Deputy Inspector General for Audits and Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome, Tom. I I think this is a great topic. And like you said at the start, it's in the news everywhere. and, And I think our report is very timely. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.